0: That's kind of a conversation between the soul That's a conversation between the soul and the Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast today, Suda Rajagopalan. Sudha is the author of Journeys of Soviet Things, Cold War as Lived Experience in Cuba and India. And she is also a professor at the University of Amsterdam. So, Sudha, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thanks so much for inviting me.
0: So this book was it, it was just such an interesting way to approach the history of the Cold War and and the history of the Soviet Union and the history of socialist globalization. So I was just wondering if we could start with a basic question, why did you choose to write this book and approach it in this way? Uh it's such an interesting way focusing on banal objects. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and and your method and how you think this gets at things that other books on the history of socialist globalization don't?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that question. Well, as I'm a cultural historian, as you probably know, uh, and so I've worked earlier as well on the cultures of Soviet Cold War geopolitics. So I've my earlier book was on Indian cinema and the Soviet Union, and I've always been very curious about the kind of everyday dimension of Cold War geopolitics. And I studied in the United States as well. So I was very aware of the kinds of narratives about the Cold War. And invariably, countries like India, Cuba, or other parts of the global South get uh, talked about like passive recipients of, you know, Cold War aid, donation, contributions, recipients of arms, and uh, what have you. So I was always struck by how binary those narratives were in the sense that we were supposed to look at the United States and the Soviet Union in these mutually exclusive ways, where if you supported the Soviet Union, you couldn't possibly have any kind of empathy for the United States or vice versa. And the truth is, of course, growing up in India, that is not how I experienced the Cold War. And I was uh, about 21 when the Cold War presumably ended. I don't think it ever did, but presumably ended. So I remember how that was, you know, and I remember that there was pretty much equal exposure to both sides of uh, the Iron Curtain. And we were also very privileged in a way to be able to choose from different kinds of cultural landscapes. And I felt that no book on geopolitics ever looked at that. And when you think about method, it just seems to me the only way that you can possibly get at that kind of ambiguity is if you look at everyday life. Because if you look at records, which are very useful, if you look at bureaucratic reports, which are very useful, they tend to just give you one side of every story, right? And also, I mean, the words are very stark. The language is very stark. It's, you know, you are friends or you are not friends, or this is a hostile period, and there is animosity or there is great uh, sympathy. So these are very These are words that conceal more than they reveal, and I felt that the only way you could possibly get at the kind of ambiguity or the grayness, as it were, of the Cold War landscape was to talk to people. And if you just talk to people and say, how did they feel, they probably would say, well, I'm not really sure how to talk about this. But if you put an object in front of them and say, where did this come from, or Why do you have this and why not something else? So what is this doing in your living room? Then they tend to reveal a great deal about how the Cold War impacted their everyday lives.
0: That's so interesting. I love that approach. But before we get into that, you just said something that I have to ask about. You said you don't think the Cold War really ended. Um, Do you mind just expanding on that? That's just just such an interesting idea to me as a Cold War historian. And then we'll get back um, to the journeys of Soviet things.
1: Yes. Well, as a cultural uh, studies scholar, of course, it's very hard to look at any kind of period of conflict and say it ended in 91 just because someone said it did. Um, And, you know, as someone who's been teaching about Russia and the Soviet Union for the last uh, 15 years at least, um, I can tell and I teach in Europe, so I can tell in my classrooms that many of these ideas about uh, Russia, post-Soviet Russia, have kind of uh, endured, right? I mean, there's this kind of implicit suspicion, and I'm not saying it's not always um, justified, but it's kind of a blanket view of Russia as, you know, never being able to get its story right or never being able to be trusted or, you know. So some of these suspicions seem to be a legacy of the Cold War. And again, I'm not saying that it isn't always justified, but it seems like it never went away. And it seems like a lot of it is colored by uh, historic acts between the 50s and the 80s.
0: That makes sense to me. So back to the book. Wh- why Cuba and India? Because on on their surface, these are two countries that have very different relationships with the North Atlantic world, with the Soviet Union. Wh- why did you focus on these two countries in particular?
1: Well, the practical reason first, I guess. I mean, India is accessible for me, so I'm able to. I mean. I have my own memories of growing up and my own lived experience of the Cold War. So in a sense, it gives you an in into the kinds of questions that you would pose to others. It gave me a ready-made community of interlocutors as well. Although, of course, only some of them I knew uh, previously. Uh, and Cuba, because uh, one, I wanted to uh, sort of move out of my comfort zone. I had never worked on Cuba. I was curious about it and I figured... Um, you know, this was a good pretext to do something new. And plus, there are many similarities, as I say in my book, right, because both of them occupied this kind of middle ground. Again, in the kind of official narratives of the Cold War, we hear about how India and the Soviet Union were friends, Cuba and the Soviet Union were allies. But, you know, the reality is, of course, that both of these countries were at the crossroads of many different cultural roots, roads, landscapes, and uh our everyday life experience tells us that. Uh, these larger stories about geopolitics don't reveal that. And so I figured that these were two countries to compare. I mean, they have their significant differences, as you say, but in many ways, it struck me as important to compare these two countries. Also because, for instance, Cuba is not was never officially part of the East Bloc, as we imagine it. We think about Eastern Europe. And Cuba was also a, a fairly enthusiastic participant of the non-aligned movement, as was India. And these were all important things. Also, memory I have of the non-aligned summit in 1983 in New Delhi when Castro came to Delhi. And uh, there was this famous embrace between Indira Gandhi and Castro, which made it to the front page of all our magazines. You know, So some of it is my own personal history and my own nostalgia. And uh, the rest of it is, of course, just intellectual curiosity.
0: Can we talk a little bit about Soviet objects and and sort of the role the object played in in the Soviet imagination? And feel free if you'd like to replace, uh, connect this at least to like Marxist theory about commodification and fetishism and all of that good stuff. Because you have a really interesting discussion of the Soviet object in your introduction. I'd love to talk more about that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. So the object, as I say in my book, um, as you rightly say, Uh, was not irrelevant, it was not uh, marginal to the way the Soviets did ideology. So we often think about Soviet ideology as, of course, being very abstract and uh, being anti-materialism. But in a sense, material culture was very important to the way that ideology played out in everyday life. And so the socialist object was, as the Soviet cultural theorists themselves said, the Soviet object was a comrade. It was supposed to accompany you in your life. It was supposed to be there to make things in your life much more, um, let's say, accessible, bearable, make your life more um, livable. So in a sense, it it was not excess, but it was just enough materialism, just enough material objects in order for that ideology to be realized, right? So the Soviet object was very much a conveyor of, uh, Marxist ideology and Soviet ideology. And not only at home, but also abroad. So at home as well, there is certainly after the 1950s with Khrushchev, there is a focus on consumerism within the Soviet Union, but with a very clear articulation of a Soviet style consumerism that doesn't believe in excess, that believes in sustainable commodities, that believes in uh, functional commodities. Uh, and that believes in commodities that are just enough in quantity to make your life sustainable, but not so much that you are distracted from the larger goals that you're supposed to be aspiring to in a communist society. So objects were not immaterial in that, you know, I mean, it sounds strange but objects were material, but they were also not immaterial to the Soviet experience. And they were also not irrelevant to the Soviet experience.
0: Maybe we could talk a little bit about the various types of objects that you focus on. And I'd love to hear, for example, why focus on household technologies? We could start with that one. And and what role did that play in this global imaginary of socialist globalization? You know, we hear about the kitchen debate famously in 59 between Nixon and Khrushchev. But I'd love to hear more about these particular objects and why you focused on them.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So perhaps uh, it might be useful to dwell a little bit on the kitchen debate as well. I mean, in, in the sense of explaining why domestic appliances were so crucial for that whole debate on the Cold War and who gets to surpass whom, would it be the Americans or would it be the Soviets? And for Khrushchev, the kitchen or the home was very much where the Soviets would eventually catch up with the Americans, right? I mean, So there is, under Khrushchev, a kind of softening of tone in terms of the Cold War rhetoric, and there is a shift towards looking at how the domestic space might become that kind of territory where the Americans and the Soviets become rivals, and who provides a better standard of living to their people. And the Soviets believed that they could. So with the kitchen debate and the rise of Soviet consumerism in the 1960s, particularly, um, there is also... um, a sense that both the Americans and the Soviets have at this time that it is through technology and particularly domestic technologies as well that both their ideologies can be marketed to the rest of the world. So uh, I talk about this in the introduction of my book. In the 50s, there was an exhibition, or a trade exhibition for American domestic appliances, but also Soviet appliances in India, for instance, you know. So it's very interesting that all of these spaces are being occupied, inhabited, used by both superpowers in many parts of the global south to talk about how their domestic technologies are actually a better indicator of how, much more superior their ideology is. So domestic appliances become very interesting. There is plenty of really good work done on domestic appliances during the Cold War and how they are a terrain for the ideological battle. But my interest was more in the use and consumption of these appliances about which nothing has been written to see um, how exactly people actually remember these objects in their home.
0: So let's talk about that. How did people remember these kitchen objects? How how did how did it differ in Cuba? How did it differ in India and what does that say about this larger project of socialist globalization in particular this sort of this consi- you know I, I view it from the American perspective this sort of hyper-consumptive ideology you know uh, organizing things around the consumer. So could you talk a little bit about what was the lived experience of these objects? And, and when you spoke with people, what did they remember about them?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And also, it's a, it's a very large question. Uh, so maybe I'll start with Cuba, because domestic appliances from the Soviet Union or the East Bloc in general were far more present in Cuba than they were in India. And there's another reason for that, which we can maybe get to in a bit. But in Cuba, domestic appliances from the East Bloc were also awarded uh, for workplace accomplishment, So a lot of people won these because they were simply very efficient workers in their factories. Some of these were acquired in the market from the late 70s, early 80s onwards as well. And uh, what is really interesting about the domestic appliances was that a lot of people actually remember the pre-revolutionary American appliances that were in their home. So my older interlocutors in Cuba will say, well, we had you know, a refrigerator from the United States which lasted well into the 1980s because it was so good, right? So for some of them, it's very interesting. It depends on the class of interlocutors because for some people in Cuba that I spoke to, uh, material comforts were not new because they had experienced these before the revolution. But for most of my interlocutors, they were very new. But for those who had experienced them before, the comparison was at first shocking because American products were simply far better. Uh, but then by the 60s, they're saying, well, the Soviet products are not that good, but more of us could own these. Very many more of us had access to these and they lasted forever. So what is really interesting is that where you, you would expect people to talk about a washing machine in very functional terms, like it worked and that's about it, or it looks great and that's about it. Um, they would say things like, well, the Soviet machine wasn't great. But it worked for us and we understand where the impulse to modernize in these ways came from for the Soviets. So there is this kind of empathy for the Soviet model that kind of works to, let's say, mitigate against their perhaps rather low opinion of Soviet technology. Right. So we don't think these products are great, but we understand that the Soviets had to make products for everyone and we have empathy for their model of modernization and production. So it's very interesting how they always embedded in these larger kind of understandings.
0: So then one question about that, how did it compare to their vision of the United States, which is also presenting itself as a mass society and creating mass consumer goods, because the U.S. also had to, quote unquote, create it for everyone. Um, so did they talk about that at all? Or in comparison, how did that work?
1: Yeah, they did. They did talk about that. In fact, it's really interesting because even if I didn't want to talk about America, the implicit comparisons would always emerge. I mean, this was true in India and Cuba, where I wasn't necessarily going into my conversation saying, how does this compare to American technologies? But the the comparison is, you know, just ever present. So Cubans would say, for instance, that with the technologies that they had, the American technologies that they had before the revolution, that that yes, these were great, but they realized that these were technologies that were not meant either to be used for very long in their perspective, right? These were meant to be replaced. This is their understanding of these technologies. And also that these were not technologies or products that were accessible for a whole lot of people. So they created class differentials in the way that Soviet technology didn't. That was their understanding and their comparison of U.S. and Soviet technologies. And um, I guess to go on to answer your question more fully, to go on to India, where domestic appliances were not imported, uh, because um, in the 70s, we had a very strict uh, policy in which we didn't import commodities from abroad in order to be able to grow our own domestic industries, consumer industries. But it's very interesting because we were able to import parts from Western uh, factories, right, and Western companies in order to be able to assemble and produce commodities on our own. And some of these commodities then found their way into the Soviet market. So the Soviets kind of indirectly got parts for their own commodities from the West through India, you know. So we didn't actually officially import Soviet commodities. We imported Soviet books officially, but nothing else. And a lot of the Indians that I spoke to who had um, domestic appliances or usually it's smaller devices like a record player or a camera or binoculars, uh, they would have picked these up either when they traveled to the Soviet Union to study or if they were traveling there for work or perhaps on the, the flea market in India, which was very common because Soviet tourists would come to India they didn't have a whole lot of foreign exchange. They would exchange Soviet commodities for local goods. So a lot of these things that, that Indians had were actually from the free market. And, and they would say, and also then to fully answer your question, they would say, well, these we didn't expect Soviet commodities to work very well, to be honest, because they didn't look all that great. And the aspiration in India was always to have commodities from the West. Um, Yet they would kind of make do with Soviet commodities because they were available and cheap. And they would always be kind of pleasantly surprised that these things lasted forever anyway.
0: So now let's talk about books, um, which is the next object that you focus on and and sort of the role of the book in the Soviet imaginary. And then we could talk about how they were remembered in Cuba and India.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, well, books, as any other object, were also uh, primarily a tool of socialization, right? So especially children's books, Soviet socialization began very early. They began in schools. They began in pioneer camps. And Soviet children's books were meant to uh, convey ideology in these in these very simple terms, but also not in uh, very patronizing paternalistic terms. So these are very kind of realistic stories that children read. And of course, It's interesting, actually, now that you mention it, a lot of the books that do get mentioned both in India and Cuba are Soviet children's books, or they are Russian classics. They're not Soviet classics, right? So Soviet socialist realism doesn't get talked about a great deal either in India or Cuba. It's Soviet children's literature. And then in India, it is Soviet textbooks, which were very, very commonly used in Indian universities and institutes. So the book was, as is any other object in the Soviet imagination, a tool for socialization. And what is really interesting about the ways in which Cubans and Indians, particularly Indians, because for some reason, the Cubans I spoke to, not very many of them really read Soviet books, but books were primarily uh, the topic among my Indian uh, interlocutors. And they would talk a great deal about how Soviet literature, Soviet children's literature was, one, very, very accessible they spoke about a world and life as Indians themselves kind of recognized it. So parents who go to a factory, they work, um, you know, there is uh, food on the table, but there's just about barely for everyone. So these were, in a sense, very realistic landscapes, literary landscapes, you know, as opposed to the other kinds of literature that we also grew up with, which is Anglo-American literature. We had plenty of English post-war children's literature that when we grew up, and all of that was lovely. I mean, I wouldn't want to have missed it for the world, but these were not worlds that we could relate to. I mean, I liked the idea of roasting chestnuts in a fire, but I didn't know you know, how on earth one did that, you know, and and I liked the idea of a boarding school and getting Christmas packages, but this wasn't going to happen in my life. And and so I loved to read these books, but Soviet children's literature had, you know, people catching a bus, getting to work on time, you know, children going to school and then, you know, um, thinking about traveling together or thinking about, you know, making it back on home in time to do homework. I mean, these were, these were stories that one could relate to. So I wouldn't say that, that the one replaced the other in our imagination. But on the contrary, as I say in my book, we grew up with both these literary landscapes. And a lot of Indian interlocutors remember children's books with a great deal of affection. And then and those who went on to study in institutes of technology, particularly, um, have a great deal of appreciation for Soviet textbooks still, which I mean, which just completely shocked me. But I heard that uh, till today in Indian Institutes of Technology, which are our primary institutes of technology, so old Soviet textbooks are still much, much more popular uh, than our American textbooks. And both get used, but Soviet textbooks are very, very popular. And uh, one of the reasons they tell me for this is because they were very, in a sense, they never talked down to the reader, Soviet books, neither children's literature nor textbooks. They assumed you were intelligent enough to read, you know, sophisticated theory. So one of my interviewees said that the Soviet maths or physics book, you dive right into theory in chapter one, you know, which American books didn't do. And uh, American books were much more playful. They were glossier. They looked better. But Soviet books did the trick with much less. And so I remember one person saying to me that he was just so impressed that Soviets could do so much with so little, I mean, with seemingly so little in terms of budgets and finances so so yeah i mean i think the one thing that really stuck out was the fact that both in terms of children's literature and later year textbooks that um interlocutors say that these books didn't uh patronize them and that they were treated like they were adults you know even children were treated like adults and so children who read these books really liked them
0: Was there any notion of race um, and how they were portrayed in the books, particularly in the children's books?
1: I mean, it's really fascinating, honestly, because I would think so. But the only time that it really comes up in the Indian interviews is when they talk about how, uh, well, they weren't really sure where these books were from. They knew they were from the East Bloc, and they suspected that they were Russian because uh, the characters are often blonde. But the only kind of racial differentiation that they perceive is on, on that level, right? So beyond that, there is a greater sense of, of cultural affinity than there is of racial differentiation. There isn't any racial affinity, there's a cultural affinity. Uh, and there is a sense of this being a different kind of race. But the fact that social realities seem to coincide to such a great degree seems to trump any perception of racial difference which is really interesting. And of course, there is some of my interlocutors talk about, um, I forget if the Cubans did, but certainly the Indians did, talk about the fact that they knew that the Soviets were a multinational state. And they felt that in many ways, India, I, India is that in many ways, right? It's a multi-ethnic uh, federation. And so they felt that the Soviets kind of understood difference in a way that the Americans and the English didn't. Because if you read, Enid Blyton's growing up, you know, the foreigner is always speaking in a funny accent. And I'm sure the Soviets did that too, except they didn't do that in the books that we received, you know. Um, So there's a greater sense of this being a more mixed society. But this didn't necessarily come through in the textbooks or the children's literature per se, but more in their general sense of how the Soviets were as a nation.
2: so, can you talk a little bit about the appeal of Soviet culture or Russian culture more broadly in, in these two countries? And you know, things like people wanting to study the Russian language or uh, you know, kind of learn Russian history and you know that that type of thing. How did that kind of uh, make its way into to Cuban and Indian society?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. So, maybe first Cuba. Well, with the revolution in '59. Uh, And uh, Castro's declaration that they are socialist within a couple of years. uh, There is, of course, a great influx of Soviet goods, Soviet aid and help into Cuba. And my interlocutors remember this moment in which Castro stood on the central square in Havana and says, uh, we need more and more of you to come forward and learn Russian because we get a lot of these uh, specialists who come in from Moscow and elsewhere who cannot speak Spanish. So we need more of you to learn Russian. And I had at least, I think, 10 interlocutors, uh, if I remember correctly, who actually were among that first bunch of students that went to Moscow in the early 1960s to study Russian. Because here was a country that was clearly a benefactor, right? It was clearly on their side in this time, in these early years of the U.S. embargo, and they were all in their mid-teens, late teens, and wondering what they had, what they could do for their careers post-revolution. And all of them set sail for, literally set sail, one of them talked about that, the journey on the ship uh, at length, actually, in an interview. Uh, they set sail for Moscow and they learned Russian, an entire world opened up for them. Many of them went on to teach Russian or work in factories where they were sent then as translators to Russia subsequently the so- in the Soviet Union. Uh, and then post-Soviet Russia subsequently. So there was this um, push driven from by the state, from above in Castro's Cuba, to study Russian and to do more things with Russia. Thousands of students from the mid-60s onwards went to the Soviet Union to study technology, engineering, science, what have you. In India, it was not quite such a concerted effort, but it still happened. We... um, let's say post-independence, independence Independence was 1947 and post-independence, both the Soviets and the Americans and the British and the French to a lesser extent tried to push, um, you know, for more aid for students to come and study, again, textbooks, uh, educational help, that kind of thing in order to be able to um, win sympathetic publics, right, in these new newly independent countries. And at this time, um, There was a huge, and I would say, I mean, it continued until perhaps even 10 years ago, an enormous base of supporters for the Soviet idea, perhaps not the Soviet idea as much as the socialist idea. The socialist temperament was very strong in India post-independence. It came about because, of course, our first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, was a liberal, a liberal Democrat, but he strongly believed in a kind of socialist egalitarianism. And he had absolutely no use for the Soviet model of terror and authoritarianism, but he believed in the five-year plan. So there was, in a sense, a great deal of empathy for a kind of political project that says that it's about, you know, reducing class difference, providing access to education for all, that kind of thing. And so a lot of these students in the 1960s were very, very taken with the Soviet project, wanted to study Russian. And really the bottom line, the Soviets provided scholarship across the board for thousands of students to come and study in the Soviet Union. It was much, much harder for a middle class Indian to go to America to study, although the aspiration was always there, right? I mean. There were plenty of American Indian middle class students who wanted to study in America or who wanted to study in Oxford or Cambridge, but it was much cheaper to study in the Soviet Union. So There was also this sense that Soviets made possible a certain kind of transnational global citizenship, a certain kind of mobility, which the North American and West European states did not provide Indians, right? It was much Harder to get a visa, it still is much harder to get a visa to come to America and to West Europe than it ever was to travel to the Soviet Union. So mobility was sort of facilitated by the Soviets, both monetarily, financially, as well as physically. It was just much easier to travel there.
0: So one thing that I'm taking, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that a lot of people in in India in particular thought kind of that the quote-unquote Western product was better but that they had access to the Soviet one. Am I understanding that? hmm So how does that play into the global struggle, the, the, the idea of winning hearts and minds, or does that not really matter when we're talking about lived experience on the ground? And that is just a question for historians who, who focus on much more macro historical things, because it kind of sounds like the United States slash North Atlantic world slash West slash first world, whatever you have you, is actually presenting itself as of higher Quality, even if it's providing less and has significant problems with what it's providing at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, but that's the reason why looking at consumption is so interesting, right? Because people are able to tell you these very layered stories about commodities. So they will tell you that materially the American products were probably better, right? And they understand from common lore and rumor and, you know, st- other people's stories that American, European products were better. But in, this, in, in their experience of consumption, so much more matters to them in the way they talk about that object, right? So, I mean, if I were a market research person that I would only be interested in knowing, is this appliance better than that appliance? But if I'm talking to someone as a cultural historian and they begin to tell me, well, the American appliance was probably better But I can never get over how the Soviets sprung in to help at a time when no one else did. Right. Or I can never get over the fact that it was much easier for me to travel to Moscow to study than it ever could have been to travel to Boston. Right. So it's really interesting when you talk about consumption, that the materiality and the functionality of the object is only a part of that story. If it had been the only part of the story, then the Americans might win that narrative. But it isn't the only part of the story, you know, which is why I love to talk to people about things, because so many kinds of emotions become, uh, you know, um, invoked in these stories about objects, right? So there is that washing machine, which doesn't work anymore, but it still stands in the backyard of this one family in Havana, where they say, well, it worked great. And we haven't thrown it away because, you know, perhaps there are other uses for it. And one can never forget that the Soviets were incredibly helpful to us and America continues to be unhelpful to us. And the Soviets and now the Russians are the only ones who have ever seen to provide for us. So the fact that that machine might not have worked optimally is almost secondary to this larger emotion of gratitude. And so I think that the, the role of emotions in the way people talk about geopolitics is something, again, that I think is a huge contribution of looking at lived experience
0: was there a sense of transnational identity actually forged through these objects or because i i know a lot of historians come up in the transnational term and, and they make claims to transnational identity but my sense is that a lot of these identities have been fairly weak you know the indian identity is much more important or the cuban identity is much more important even though they associate positively they have positive ideas with the soviet union so what actual types of identities were formed? Were these actually strong? I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, really. I think one of the most interesting things about both of these countries being at the crossroads of so many histories also, right, not just cultural landscapes, but so many histories, is that... uh, when people speak, they don't actually speak as though they are speaking for a nation or even about a particular historical moment necessarily, right? So these are shifting solidarities, depending on what you're talking about. So um, when Indians talk about uh, Soviet objects, they say, well, uh, yeah, I mean, we had books, they were great. We had some domestic appliances on occasion, And one felt, I think one of my interlocutors in India said, you know, one felt with the Soviets that we were actually um, equal partners in the project of getting ahead, right, which was really interesting. But at the same time, it isn't a kind of solidarity or affinity, uh, transnational or transversal, that excludes any others. So when we talk about transnational identity or affinities, sometimes what happens is that we talk about transnational affinities in mutually exclusive ways, right? So the Indians felt uh, like they had they shared an affinity with the Soviets. They did, but because these shift depending on context, depending on objects, depending upon historical period, or depending upon historical episode, it's very hard to talk about transnational affinity or identity uh, as though these were stable kinds of uh, processes, right? So these are kind of uh, shifting solidarity, shifting identities where on the one hand, the, the, the kind of level of comfort with which Cubans, for instance, will talk about feeling completely, um, particularly, specifically South American, right, in a way that they do not identify with the East Bloc at all. They have great gratitude. They have great sympathy for that socialist project, but they are Castro's people, right? Then they are Latin American. They identify very strongly with that continent. Uh, The same way with, with Indians who say, well, I felt very strongly about Soviet books, But, you know, I felt uh, equally strongly about um, uh, American pop culture or about going to Oxford and Cambridge for my PhD, right? So these are solidarities that are based on certain principles, perhaps principles, socialist principles of modernization, uh, uh, equal access to things, um, and also treating countries of the global South as equal partners in, you know, global geopolitics, a sense that Cubans and Indians did not necessarily get from uh, North American actors, for instance, right? So, um,
0: I mean, I totally agree and understand the shifting nature of identity. Did they have political effects or is this one of the many miasma of identities that every individual has in the world? I was wondering, and we don't need to, I was just wondering if if, if there's like a traceable impact in politics and economics um, or is this sort of individual and you know the, the complexities of being a human in the world.
1: Yeah, I get that. I think this is traceable in uh, let me see how can I put this. I mean in Cuba it very much plays out now also in the way the politics has sort of unfolded in the last 20 years, right? I mean one of the things that stuck out to me on the Cuban interviews for instance was that although they regarded the Soviets and now the Russians as their great benefactors one of their lessons that they feel that they learned from the Soviet experience was, or the the Cold War experience, was the fact that um, they shouldn't be overly dependent on any one kind of, um, you know, political player, right? One kind of political actor. So the sense of being connected and affiliated and sharing an affinity with many, many players across the world is something that's playing out now in Cuba in the sense that they're their geopolitical partners are multiple, right? And they kind of sense or they speak about, they speak with some regret about having become too dependent on one particular superpower during the Cold War. In the case of India, the whole kind of shifting nature of identity was very much something that came down from the top as well because the Indian state itself, had both very good ties with the Soviet Union, but also fairly good ties, sort of variable ties with the UK, France and America. Right. Of course, in terms of um, actual sort of hot wars and proxy wars and, you know, in, in, in South Asia, the Soviets and the Americans were clearly pitted against each other. And the Soviets did support India against America, who supported Pakistan. Um, But in very, very general terms, you know, in terms of regular trade commodities, in terms of ideas, in terms of literary visions, I mean, the state encouraged, in a sense, um, exposure to both these uh, landscapes. And so what Indians perhaps speak about in terms of feeling affinity here and there was very much a product of the kind of politics that India actually played. Um, at the top. So I would say that it wasn't necessarily only the usual kind of human ambivalence but actually a product of ideology or pr- product of um global south geopolitics really during the cold war.
2: Sir um actually I, I want to follow up on on the regret that you you said you uh, saw or, or heard from some cubans about their dependence on the Soviet Union. That's interesting to me because Cuba's dependence in the Soviet Union wasn't entirely Cuba's choice. I mean, it was the United States that imposed the embargo and kind of forced Cuba into that position. So I, I wonder, do do people view that dependency as a function of choices that the Cuban government made or is something that was forced upon them?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They. I mean, there is not a single interview that goes by without them talking about uh, the absolute sort of, I mean, the criminal unfairness of the embargo and uh, we know, which continues to affect everyday life in Cuba till today. So no, it wasn't a choice. I mean, perhaps it was a choice in the sense that there were other benefactors that uh, at the time that might have helped Cuba, but it was the Soviets who came in, you know, uh, sort of fully enthusiastic, embracing uh, the Cuban socialist project who were keen on, you know, in a sense, consolidating Cuba's strength, consolidating its economy, its, it's all of its infrastructure. So it was. Yeah. So in that sense, I guess it wasn't choice because it was the, only the Soviets who offered that much help at the time. So it was it wasn't a choice in the sense that it was the Soviets really who uh, offered that much help at the time. But it is not a regret that comes from their own choice or the own or choices that they seemingly made themselves. But a regret that geopolitics played out in the way that it did, that they came to be dependent on just one uh, one player. So now if they talk about, it's really interesting when you go through uh, the Cuban home in, in Havana, at least, you know, with the refrigerator from Taiwan and the television from China and then this odd remaining Soviet object, they invariably talk about how one, how much more beneficial it is for Cubans to be trading now with so many different actors in a way that they didn't 20 years ago. So that's when they talk about that regret, but not regret so much at the choices they made, because as you say, they didn't have a choice, but regret that they were put in that position where they could only depend on one player.
0: So uh, as we wrap up here, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the decorative artifacts, which is the third big category. Uh, It's it's pre-Soviet, actually, Russian decorative artifacts. So again, the the first two are are almost a bit more understandable, at least from a geopolitical perspective. Household technologies and books, you know, very clearly ideological projects. I guess so are decorative artifacts. But why why decorative artifacts and how do they reflect themselves in, in Cuba? in India and relate to this larger story that you've been telling?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't actually, I mean, I, when I set out to do this, I wasn't planning to look at decorative artifacts, because as you rightly say, these are not really objects that you associate with ideology. These are pre-revolutionary um, souvenirs, you know, the matryoshka and that kind of thing. But um, it became inescapable, really, because if you talk about Uh, the cold war in uh, people's lives and they talk about traveling to moscow to study or talk about their um, fantastic russian phd supervisor who gave them who organized a party for them when they when they graduated the kinds of objects that changed hands then were not domestic appliances they were little gifts they were porcelain they were lacquerware they were and you know they were things that they have in their little cabinets And so I was really struck by how many people, particularly Indians as well, uh, because we didn't have a formal trade with the Soviets, a lot of these objects came to India through student travel. And um, I was struck by the kind of the politics of emotions here, right, because talking about The Matryoshka then became talking, uh, became about the hospitality of their everyday hosts in the Soviet Union. It became about the general kind of largesse of the Soviet state, allowing Indians Indians to travel and to study and to be there. And then, you know, also uh, the simple acts of uh, accommodation that the Soviets displayed towards those from the global south. So I was really struck by these interpersonal relationships. So when you talk to someone about their lived experience of the Cold War, they are not talking about summits and exotic places and trade agreements, right? They're talking about, uh, you know, the time when that Soviet landlady did them a favor and fed them because they ran out of groceries or, you know, that bus driver that stopped and let them in because it was so cold in Moscow. I mean, And these little acts become so memorable for those remembering the Cold War. And invariably in these relationships, it is decorative artifacts that change hands. You know, so they became an inevitable, inescapable part of the story, really.
0: So... Just as a final question, what do you think that we need to understand in order to fully understand the Cold War more? What should future historians do to try to incorporate this method of focusing on objects so we're not just focusing on the Geneva Summit for the nine millionth time? Like, how could this be incorporated into larger Cold War historiography if you had your druthers?
1: Yeah, well, I mean... I think, of course, key to doing this kind of history is really the oral method, you know, speaking to people. Uh, Doing oral history is absolutely uh, a valuable uh, method. But I think uh, perhaps, first of all, abandoning this idea that people live or think in these very sort of systematic and binary ways, you know. uh, I think letting go of that idea, and we see much of it today as well, right? There is very clearly a sense that you are either I mean, you either support America or you support Russia. There is there is no other kind of ground that you could possibly occupy, apparently. So, I mean, the sense that, you know, there are only these two prescribed paths to thinking about great power politics or the way we experience them. I mean, that is perhaps the first thing that needs to be left at the door because most of the world does not think in these ways, you know. Uh, most of the world sees politics, uh, sees history uh, in very, very complex ways where there is no clear one single bad actor or one single evil participant. I mean, that's not how life is. That's not how history has ever been. So I think perhaps abandoning that expectation, first of all, uh, embracing ambiguity, uh, most of all, thinking of ambiguity as a good thing, right? I mean, we think that ambiguity is, is sort of, you know, it's It sort of muddies the waters, but you know, waters are generally muddy and uh, it's okay for them to be muddy. So I think perhaps having that expectation going in, doing a history is perhaps the most vital thing. And then the best way to really get about it is talking to people, looking at the banal, uh, really, um, to understand and to kind of sketch a picture of that ambiguity.
0: Well, Derek has to look at my face every day, so he's definitely looking at the banal. Uh, Suda Rajagopalan, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, really check out this book, Journeys of Soviet Things. It's so compelling, and it's a really interesting way to understand the transnational history of the Cold War. So, Sudha, thank you so much, and we look forward to having you back.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It was great talking to you. <laughs>